0: The American church is in trouble. Churches in America are closing at a rate faster than new ones can be planted. Much of the theology in much of the American church is as squishy as jello, and does nothing to provide a solid foundation on which the people of God can stand. Much of the American church, scripture-based sermons have been replaced with pop psychology and motivational speeches That are intended to produce good little worldlings, and it's working. In much of the American church, professing believers share the same morality as unbelievers. In much of the American church, professing believers share the same values as unbelievers. In much of the American church, professing believers share the same priorities as unbelievers. In much of the American church, professing believers share the same attitudes. As unbelievers. In much of the American church, professing believers share the same actions as unbelievers. In much of the American church, unbeliever, or professing believers share the same reactions to stressors as unbelievers. In fact, for much of the American church, the only difference between a professing believer and a professing unbeliever is a profession of faith. Not a demonstration of faith, not a living of faith, Merely the words, a profession of faith. Many professing believers in the American church have no more actual commitment to Scripture than their unbelieving friends do. Many professing believers in the American church believe they've had a hand in their own salvation. Or they believe that people can be saved by being good enough. Many professing believers in the American church are no more active in their service to their God Than their unbelieving friends are. An article I read a few years ago declared that many professing believers in the American church have a greater loyalty to their brand of toothpaste than they do to their church. The church that Jesus Christ started by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. What is the problem? The problem is that many in the American church do not know their God. Many in the American church have no idea who their God is or what their God is like. And so they make up their own ideas that are damnably wrong. What we in the American church need is a fresh vision of our God. Open your Bible to Isaiah 6 and we're going to look at such a vision today. It's on page 521 in the Pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it stood stood Seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out in the smoke. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will be returning for consuming. As a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be in its stump. title of the message this morning is, We Need a Vision of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are far more amazing and far more glorious and far more great than our minds can comprehend. Father, we come today with a desire to know more, to understand more. So Lord, we ask humbly for your Holy Spirit to come to take this vision that That you gave to Isaiah and make it real to us in our day. You've told us that your word is living and active, so make this vision living and active in us. Give us a glimpse of your glory. Give us a picture of how great and how awesome you are. And as we look at this word, this, this vision, Father, let us see it from your word as clearly as if we were Isaiah ourselves. Let us understand how great our God is. Let us understand how deep our sin is. Let us understand how worthy You are of all of our devotion and of all of our lives. Holy Spirit, come today. Empower the Word to be a light that will dispel darkness in people's minds. That they would see the glory of our God in the face of Jesus Christ. And they would turn to Him and be saved. Fill me Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And let me say all the things that I need to say and none of the things that I don't need to say. Guide me that my attitude would be right and I would be for God's glory in all that I say and all that I do this morning. Have your way. Father, in our hearts and in our lives, and let us leave here with the attitude of of Isaiah, ready and willing to go and do whatever it is you'd have us to do. We do it for your glory, for you're worthy of that, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah 6, it details... Isaiah's is call to be a prophet. God called Isaiah to serve him in a time of transition and decline for the nation of Israel. The time of Uzziah's reign was one of prosperity, peace, and relative faithfulness to God, but this was all about to change. The people had already begun a descent into depravity that would only worsen as time went on. The people had already started giving themselves over to greed to indulgence, to drunkenness, idolatry, sexual immorality. They had begun to mock what was righteous. They had begun to persecute those who through faith in God tried to live righteously. Isaiah would be sent to a people who had perverted their value system to such a point that they called evil good and good evil. And as I thought about this passage during the week, I was struck at how familiar this all seems in our day. A people once devoted to God who were now indifferent, indulgent, and idolatrous. They shared the, the morality and the immorality of the pagans around them. They mocked righteousness. They reviled those who tried to live righteously. And they had a perverted value system. In the midst of this kind of a culture, mere faithfulness to God would be difficult, much less all-out devotion. To God. What would Isaiah need. In order to be faithful to God. In this evil and corrupt culture. What do we need. In order to be faithful to God. In our evil and corrupt culture. We need what Isaiah needed. And what God gave. And that is a vision of God himself. So the key truth today. Is that we need a vision of God. To live faithfully. For God. We need a vision for God to live faithfully for God. What kind of vision do we need? We need a vision of God's greatness. One of the greatest needs in the church today is an accurate view of our God. Culture today, and even much of the Christian culture, has a view of God that is based more on feeling and fantasy than Scripture. Many today have constructed a view of God that pleases them, rather than accepting the revelation of God He Himself has given. We see this every time someone starts a sentence with, well, I can't imagine that God, or I know what the Bible says, but... The end of those sentences always, always contradicts what God has revealed about Himself, His ways, His will. The end of that sentence always, always makes God less than He actually is. Those thoughts of God are far too human. It is doubtful there are any errors in the Christian life today that do not originate with faulty, errant views of God. We need a vision of God's greatness like the one Isaiah was given. In the vision that Isaiah was given, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The temple, if you remember in the temple where Isaiah sees this vision, the temple was separated into three parts. There was the the holy place. There was the outer court where anyone, any devoted Jewish person could go. There was the holy place, which only the priests were allowed to go. And then there was the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now the Ark was symbolic of God's presence with the people. And there was a large veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So that no one could not merely see into the presence of God. Not only could people not see into the presence of God, they could not go into the presence of God. It wasn't just anyone that was allowed beyond the veil into the most holy place. Only the high priest and then only once a year and never without a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. This vision of this vision of God took Isaiah past the veil to the most holy place where the very presence of God where he was able to see. For the first time ever, a measure of God in all of His glory. He was able to, to see God with all of the glory that human eyes are able to stand. And around the throne stood seraphim. The word seraphim, it, it basically means burning one, signifying their brightness and the glory that dazzles off of them. They have six wings, but they only use two of those to fly. With two, they cover their eyes. With two, they cover their feet. They covered their eyes because they knew that even these awesome beings, they were not worthy to behold the Lord of glory. They were not worthy to look full upon Him. Is this how you envision God? It must be to have an accurate vision of who God is and what God is like. You must see God as awesome and glorious and awe-inspiring. Isaiah was allowed to see the King of kings sitting on His throne, being worshipped by the hosts of heaven. And through Scripture, we see this vision as well. We must elevate our view of God until it fits with what we see Here thinking wrongly about our God is demeaning to our God thinking wrongly about God always makes God less than what he is, because think about what we're doing when we say, well, that part of God makes me uncomfortable. I like to think of him like this. What we're saying is, God, you're not good enough the way that you are. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you better. And in the end, that is nothing more than idolatry. It is creating an image of God that is not God. And in that, we do not worship a God. We do not worship our God. We worship a God of our own making. As the seraphim flew around, they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. Now the repetition in the Jewish language was a was commonly used to show a deepening of intensity. Think about when Absalom died in 2nd 2nd Samuel 18. David finds out and when he says, "Oh Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son." He he repeats this, showing the depth of his sorrow at the death of his son. Pay careful attention to what attribute of God is being emphasized. In this vision, the angels are not crying out, love, love, love is the Lord Almighty. The angels are not crying out, grace, grace, grace is the Lord Almighty. The angels are not crying out, mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord Almighty. Now they are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The holy nature of God is possibly the single most distinguishing attribute of God, while at the same time being the least thought of and the least popular. We love to think about the grace, the mercy, the love, the power of God. Those are comforting. Those are encouraging. But we don't like thinking on His holiness. We put it way down the list because the holiness of God makes us uncomfortable. If we are ever going to have an accurate view of God, we have to view all that He is and all that He does through the lens of His holiness. Is God love? Absolutely. First John tells us that. But it is a holy love. Love in our culture means that we accept everything. If I love you, I must accept everything you say, everything you do, everything you believe and every action you take as okay. That is not the love of God. God's love is holy. And the things that are wrong are wrong, even when those He loves does them. Is God the author of grace? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it is a holy grace the grace that our culture wants is a a sloppy grace it's an easy grace it's a grace that says it doesn't matter how I live or what I do grace covers it all but that is not the grace we find in scripture. The grace we find in scripture changes us from the inside out, turns us into a people wholly devoted to our God. It, it does not accept our sin. It conquers it. It overcomes it and it changes us. Is God merciful? Yes, but it is a holy mercy. God's mercy does not excuse sin, not in me, not in you. Not in anyone, not ever. God's mercy covers sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. But it does not excuse it. Not now and not ever. God's holiness separates Him from everything and everyone else in all of creation. Scripture repeatedly talks about this. Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? This is a part of the the hymn the Israelites sing after God has destroyed Egypt in the Red Sea. And as they sing out, we have just left Egypt with its multitude of gods. None of them are like you. For you are glorious, glorious, in holiness. It was his holiness in part that made him different from all of the false gods of Egypt. And Isaiah it says, Whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? says the Holy One. There are, God's implication is there are none like him, because he is holy. Any vision we may have of who God is, what He does. That does not make His holiness the central attribute by which all others are viewed. Makes God less than He is and it is unworthy of Him. If we want a vision of God so that we can faithfully live for God, then we must view God as high, lifted up, and awesome in holiness. We also... We need a vision of God's greatness. But we also need a vision of God's salvation. Look at verse 5. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing God high and lifted up, seeing a measure of the glory and the holiness of God causes Isaiah to cry out in alarm. He cries out because he recognizes the evil and the severity of his sin. The cry of woe, it is a cry of alarm. He suddenly had a sense that something terrible was about to happen to him because he was a sinner in the presence of a holy God. His fears that God would strike him dead. Because of his sin. And as he recognized the severity of his sins. He understood his guilt. And he feared the impending judgment. For he knew a holy God cannot excuse sin. Isaiah realized that if God dealt with him in strict justice. Instead of mercy he was doomed. He would die in that moment. Isaiah's statement is a confession. I am a man of unclean lips. He was guilty of sin. It's also a recognition that his guilt and his sin deserved the judgment of God. Standing in the presence of a holy God, Isaiah did not say everyone has to have at least one bad habit. Standing in the presence of a holy God, Isaiah did not say, well at least I'm not killing people or committing adultery. Standing in the midst of a holy God, Isaiah did not say, these are just small sins. I've never really done anything all that bad. His perspective on sin had been changed. And he could not do anything to justify his sin. He simply fell on his face before a holy God. Overwhelmed at the weight of God's holiness. And the weight of his sin and his guilt. He had seen God. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Whatever view of sin he had before would be forever changed after that. If he had a lax view of sin before this moment, it would never be that way again. His sin made him unclean. His sin made him worthy of judgment. His sin brought him low. We almost never see this kind of response to sin in our day. We don't have this view of sin because we don't have an accurate view of God. The more that we make our God like us, the less severe our sin will be and the less it will bother us. Listen, that's just a fact. If you don't think your sin is serious, you think your sin is minor, no big deal. It's just because you think unworthy thoughts about God. It's because you've created a God in your own mind that's okay with your sin. You've made him a lot more like you than he really is. God is not in the heavens looking down upon your sin or mine saying, well, they're not as bad as others. He is up there fearful in holiness. And if we were to see Him, we too would fall down like Isaiah and say, Woe is me, I am undone. The more our view of God is of Him being awesome in glory, beautiful in holiness, the more severe our view of sin will be. And the more it will bother us. Oh friend, If you profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, and your sin does not bother you, I plead with you, examine your view of the God of the Bible. For if your view of your sin does not change because of what you've seen of God, then your view of God is far too human. It is not the God of the Bible you're seeing. It is a God of your own imagination who cannot save and will leave you damned in eternity. The picture in Isaiah 5 is of Isaiah falling prostrate before the Lord under the weight God's holiness. The weight of his sin, the weight of his guilt. Try to imagine for a second the level of anguish that Isaiah must have felt in his soul after seeing his sin in light of God's holiness. This is how we should all feel about our sin. But God is great, awesome, and merciful. So He does something amazing. Verse six, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal with which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Rather than leaving Isaiah or us under the crushing weight of our sin and guilt, God provides cleansing. One of the angelic beings Takes a coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips and tells him that his iniquity is taken away. This altar was the altar for burnt offerings that was to always be burning. It's where sacrifices were made to God. This would have been a reminder to Isaiah that something died to make His forgiveness possible. That there was something that had died in his place. That what he deserved was death. But God reckoned the death of another in his place. what Isaiah realized at that moment was there was no way he could make up for his own sin. He was desperately in need of God to show him grace and mercy. From this moment on, there's no talk about how good Isaiah is there's no talk about how much better he is than his neighbor. There's no talk about the, the stuff that he had done. The good deeds that he had done. How he had cared for others. There's no talk of anything that Isaiah had done to merit this. There is just a recognition. He was unworthy, but God, the holy and majestic God, did something on Isaiah's behalf and cleansed him of his sin. Isaiah was made to realize he was wholly dependent on God for his cleansing his forgiveness, his redemption we are just as wholly dependent upon God to cleanse us as Isaiah was for God to cleanse him scripture says but of God you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom righteousness sanctification And redemption that as it is written, let him who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Notice the exact wording. It is because of God we are in Christ Jesus. It is Christ who became for us righteousness, sanctification and redemption. So that the only glory there is for your salvation and mine goes to God. It was God who came up with the plan of salvation that we call the gospel. It was God who gave his only begotten son to come to earth to die in our place. It was Jesus who lived sinlessly. It was Jesus who died sacrificially. It was Jesus who rose victoriously. It was the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to our need for Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who drew us to Jesus. All we do is believe. We believe what God planned. We believe what Jesus did. We believe what the Spirit reveals. This belief is, is active. It leads us to, to reach out and take hold, as it were, of the salvation that's being offered to us. And then once we believe, it is God who puts us in Christ and justifies us. And at that moment, Jesus becomes our redemption. Jesus becomes our righteousness. Jesus becomes our sanctification. Everything about your salvation and mine is wholly dependent on God from start to finish. So that all of the glory goes to God. When we stand before God in heaven, there is not one person in all of creation who will stand and say, God, we did it. You and me. We got me here. You got me started, you helped me along the way, but I carried myself over the hump. Now on that day, we will stand before the Lord. We will say, I'm only here because of you. I was so weak. I was so flawed. I blew it so many times. Oh God, if it were not for you, I would be in hell as I deserve. And this is a, tr- a humbling truth. It's humbling to acknowledge that we are wholly dependent on another to cleanse us from our sin and make us righteous. Tumbling humbling to acknowledge that we never add to or we never improve upon the righteousness that Jesus gives us. It's humbling to acknowledge that our redemption rests wholly on Jesus. His willingness to die in our place. His willingness to cleanse us of our sin. His willingness to give us His righteousness so that we could have a right standing of God. It is humbling to know that no matter what I do, how good by the world's standards I am, I never Deserve the least of the Lord's blessings. Jesus said in Luke 17. That when you do everything that you have done. You should then say. I am but an unprofitable servant. Who has done his duty. We never earn anything before our God. We never put our God into our debt for any reason or in anything. Any vision we have of who God is and what God is like that attributes merit for salvation to anyone, but God makes God less than He is and is unworthy of Him. Any vision we have of who God is and what God is like that puts God in our debt for anything that we do makes God less than he is and is unworthy of him. If we want a vision of who God is so that we can faithfully live for God, then we must view God as the one who gets all the credit, all the glory for our salvation. We need a view of vision of God's greatness. We need a vision of God's salvation. And we need a vision of God's mission. After being cleansed, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go? I love this part. And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. What's the mission? We don't know. God hasn't told him. How long? Will it be easy? Will it be hard? Will it hurt? Will He be glorified? Will He be honored? Will He be rejected? We don't know. None of that is told at this point. God just says, Who's going to go for Me and do something I want them to do? And Isaiah Having seen the greatness, the majesty, the glory of God, having understood the depths of His own depravity, and having been cleansed by God, says without hesitation, Me! Pick me! I wanna go! I'll do whatever you want me to do, God. And I wonder, I wonder if we were to hear God this morning cry out, Whom's, who'll I send? Who's gonna go for me? How, how would we respond? Would we respond with looking around, shuffling our feet, seeing if someone else responded, and if no one else did, just kind of going, I, I guess I'll go. Or, or would we respond like Isaiah did, here I am, send me. Sadly. Many professing believers see serving God as a hardship to be endured. Just one more thing to add to our already busy and complicated lives. And yet this isn't the way it's supposed to be. The psalmist said we're to serve the Lord with gladness. To come before His presence with singing. Our service to God should be a source of joy in our lives. Our service to God should be a source of excitement in our lives. Serving God should be something we rejoice in getting to do. should never be seen as something that we have to do. Now, if we're not... Careful, we'll make a foolish statement and say something like, well, I'd answer God's call if I knew I was going to go be a prophet like Isaiah. That's big time. But we say things like that because we romanticize what it was like to be Isaiah, to be a prophet of God. And, And because really and truly we just don't know our Bibles any better than we know our God's. The rest of chapter six gives us an idea of what Isaiah was being called to. Verse nine, God says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn to me and be healed. Essentially what God is saying is it's going to be hard. It's going to be unpopular. And at the end of your service to me, Isaiah, there aren't going to be any real converts to speak of. You're not going to be a mega church pastor, going to conferences and writing books that everybody wants to buy. You're just not going to be that well known, that popular, or that effective, or that fruitful by human standards. So Isaiah asked what I think would be a a legitimate response. How long? How long? How long do I have to have a hard, unpopular, unfruitful ministry, God? Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, till the houses are without people, till the land is utterly desolate, till the Lord has removed people far away, till the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. A long time. In the end, it seems only Daniel served as a prophet longer than Isaiah. Isaiah served for close to 50 years in all. He served as a prophet of God for five kings. None of whom ever really appreciated the ministry of Isaiah. He served God in a hard position for a very long time. And he was able to do this because he saw God as He was. He saw God as great and awesome and worthy of His life and of His devotion. When we see God as He is, we won't put limits on when we will serve God, where we will serve God, or how long we will serve God. Those that have seen the power and the glory of God don't say things like, well... I'll only serve as long as I won't do. I could never. This is too hard. I quit. Those who have truly seen the power and the glory of God are so amazed that that great and awesome God would let them do anything for them. They will surrender their lives to do what He wants done, when He wants it done, the way that He wants it done. But here's the thing. God is still calling. Right now, through this scripture, the voice of the Lord is saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who's going to go? Who's going to go to your workplace? Who's going to go to your neighbors? Who's going to go to our community? Who's going to go to our family members? God is at this moment crying out. Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And we have an opportunity to say, Here I am. Send me. I'll go. And if we understand who God is and what God is like, we will say exactly that. Any view we have of God that sees the mission of God as optional or of secondary importance or as something we have to do, makes God less than He is, and it is unworthy of Him. If we want a vision of God so that we can faithfully live for God, then we must view God as the One who graciously calls us to be on mission with Him. Some will be tempted at this point to say, well, this is Old Testament. Things are different with Jesus. And I would answer by saying you should read the Gospel of John. Particularly chapter 12, verse 41. Where John quotes a portion of this chapter. And says it refers to what Isaiah saw. When he saw Jesus in all of His glory. So when we look at this passage and we see the Lord high and lifted up. The seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we see Jesus, we see that picture and Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm undone. Isaiah is seeing Jesus. Jesus, when we see Jesus in eternity, he won't look like that. He won't look like that. He will look like this. In the book of Revelation, The Apostle John is given a a picture of Jesus and all of His glory. Remember, John was the beloved disciple. And what did John do when he saw the glorified Christ? Did he say, hey bud, what's up with Mr. JC? No! He bowed before Him. He fell on the ground as though He were dead. This is Jesus. And any view you have of Jesus... That is JC in the house, your pal upstairs, and not the great and the glorious God of heaven is unworthy of him. And you should repent of that and believe in the great and the awesome God of the Bible and be saved. How different, how different would our lives be if we saw Jesus as he was, instead of his culture has conditioned us to see him. Instead of our sinful hearts want to make him, instead of how heretical books portray him, dear friends, there is one revelation of Jesus Christ, and it is this book. And any view of Jesus that is inconsistent with this is unworthy of him. It is a Jesus that is far too human. It is what Paul would call another Jesus who cannot save you. This is how we must see Jesus. Everything in Isaiah's life changed when he saw the glorified Lord. If we want to live for Jesus the way that He deserves, the way that recognizes His sacrifice on our behalf, we have to see Him as the risen, high and lifted up, and glorified Lord of glory. We must cry out for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. To purge from our hearts thoughts that are unworthy of our Lord. And make us see Him as He is. So that our lives will be lived for Him in a way that honors Him. If your desire today is to see Jesus as He is. Then we are going to take time and you take this time and you pray. God, to change your heart, to change your vision, for the Spirit to open your eyes to the greatness of the Savior who died.